Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Jarle Strömoden. And your current position, give us a little bit of a, a formal title for that. Oh, I'm a director of the Vigeland Museum in Oslo. And I've been that for 17 years. So I always love hearing a little bit about like how people got to their positions. So I know you're an art historian by sort of uh, training, but so like, how did you come to that? Like, so, you know, in childhood, where did you have some, some people that were creative in your family? What led you down the path to art historian in the first place? Um, <laughs> it was quite accidental. To be As serious. it often is. Yes, it is. Because my parents, they were... Oh, my father is dead, but uh, my mother lives uh, still. But, I mean, unemployed. As, uh, sorry, uneducated. No, sorry about that. No, my, my mother was a part-time... Sorry, wa- mom. Yes. Don't listen to this. No, uh, no she was a part-time waitress. Uh, and my father was uh, on a tugboat in the southern part, the southwestern part of, of Norway, two hours from, from Oslo. Um the upbringing was was fine. I mean, it, it, I was born in 1965, so in the 70s and 80s. And the good thing about growing up and choosing your education that you could choose. There was, and if you felt that you sort of uh, got on the wrong track at the university, for instance, well, you just changed the topic. And I really had no idea in my teens what to do. And I started off late. So in my early 20s, after my military service, which is still, at that time was mandatory in Norway. Huh? Wait, huh? what? <laughs> mandatory military service? Yes, there was. Uh, yeah. So, so I spent uh, 13 months in, in the Navy. Wow. Uh, no, not wow, because that was what you did. Uh, had no problems with that. So in the late 80s, uh, in the approaching 25 years of age. I started at the university. First, uh, history of ideas and... Uh, wait, that's a study, a field of study? History of ideas? Yes, it is. That's beautiful. It is. It is indeed. I, I think that would be like philosophy, maybe? It's, uh, some, some philosophers would say it is a philosophy light. Uh, <laughs> I would, yeah, yeah, I would go with that. So there, there, was, go with that. No. there was some sort of a... Mm, an argument between those people. But nevertheless, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, quite challenging. And I don't know, I just started at the history of ideas. And I very much liked it in my intermediate degree, uh, writing on, I had, a, the subject was Impressionism, uh, European art from the 1850s to 1900. And I very much enjoyed that. And I sort of decided to go for the major degree which I did, and uh, I uh, graduated in 1995. When you say major degree, is that a master's or a PhD? It's something in between. <laughs> Can't make it easy. Yeah, what, what's the in-between thing? No, but, but the thing is that uh, back in the days, you had a minor degree, an intermediate degree, and major degree. But these days, we have bachelor and master, and then the PhD. Right. So it... It would equal the the master okay. degree, so basically. Fair enough. Uh, and then I, again, it was sort of accidental. Uh, I was at the I was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in 1996. There was a position, uh, a vacant position, 
I applied for it. I was, well, the number two. But the one, a friend of mine actually, he was, uh, he, he was their number one. But he turned it down because he at that time had a nice position at the Astor Ferny Museum. So when he turned it down, I was the next in line. And so there you are. I, I didn't see anything like this coming. And I spent five years at the then Museum of Contemporary Art in Oslo, which is now part of the National Museum. And as a sort of newly graduated art historian, this was more or less heaven, really. Uh, and my colleagues, my seniors, uh, they was particularly the one, he was so generous. So I had five years and I thought I could sort of rule the world. And I applied for a position in Tromsø uh, as a uh, director uh, for the uh, sort of uh, a small art institution, a Kunstverein, as they say in in German. So it was uh, it was not a museum, but it was a, a gallery, so to speak, uh, with changing exhibitions. It did have a very good standing uh, at that time, and I thought that I would find out what what can I possibly do outside of Oslo. Is it possible to sort of achieve something outside of Oslo? And of course it was. I, I was going to say, so what was the outcome of that investigation? Uh, uh, interesting, I would the, say. The outcome of that investigation is you returned to Oslo. I did. <laughs> I did. To make a long story short. But I very much enjoyed Tromsø. Uh, absolutely. But it didn't turn out, to, turn out to be what I was thinking and what I was sort of presented, to say the least. And we just leave it there. So I, uh, I returned to Oslo. Um, and I, was, I wasn't in between jobs because I had no idea what I was going to do. Turning 40 and felt miserable. And, but then again, there was accidentally, my former boss, she said, well, there's a position at the Histefors Museum, which is a sculpture park some one hour uh, west of Oslo. It is owned by a uh, uh, financial tycoon called Kristen Sveos. Uh, he has a, uh, an extremely nice collection of art, both historical and contemporary art. And he he runs this. This is it's a museum and a sculpture park with superb works by uh, Norwegian and international artists. I'm not going to name names now. Uh, you may have heard about Kistevos Museum and their fairly recent building called The Twist, which is a gallery, a temporary gallery. Mm -hmm. And when in, when in southern Norway, when in Oslo, go there, because it's absolutely worth it. Absolutely. But then I had three months there, and I very much enjoyed it. Absolutely. And while I was there, there was a temporary position at the Vigla Museum, because the director at that time, she... Uh, she had uh, she was suffering from cancer so she was uh, she was to be given treatment and uh, I applied for that uh, position and I was given okay can you just take this position for at least six months while she is in treatment uh, and I said yes which was good and the irony the irony of fate maybe was that while I was there she passed away and I I'm not, I hope I'm not sounding cynical, but I, mean, uh, I knew that this position would be available. 
And I, it's I, the cunning plan we all play yeah. in the arts. And I, th- I was giving it some serious thinking because is this a museum I would like to work for? Is this a position I would like to have? And I thought, well, it's a collection. Or, well, one man, a one-man museum is also a challenge. But there was a changing exhibition and my, my, my well, I mean, uh, Toril Smith, she was going to be my predecessor, but she had uh, put up a, a very interesting program of contemporary artists. So I knew what I was going to work with. Uh, and my colleagues, they were so nice, and they're still my colleagues <laughs> after 17 years. And uh, so I applied, and I was given the position. So 1st January 2006, I was formally... Um, uh, sort of employed as the director and well here we are so give us a little bit of background on this particular museum you said it was a one-man museum which mm. the honest truth is not as common worldwide these days i mean there maybe there was a time when there were a lot of these sort of private museums about a single artist i say that as i'm sitting in also with the monk museum but you know the, that's brand new but they're not that common these days. There was a time period when they seemed to be you know, popping up and they were very common. So what are some of the challenges that you, you would have to deal with with being something that's sort of based around a single artist, his, historical artist even? Now let's start with the, the beginning of this because uh, the Vigla Museum is not size-wise, but it's equal to the Munch Museum because both are owned by the municipality of Oslo. So we're both funded by the city of Oslo. That's interesting. But it's a fact. Are you funded equally? No. Um. <laughs> and that's all we're going to have to say about that, right? Uh, at the moment, yes. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> I enough. I think we need an own podcast on that. Yeah, uh, no, that's fine. But, yeah. but nevertheless, it's uh, the, both uh, Viglan and Munk, they uh, sort of gave their art to the city of Oslo. And in return, the city of Oslo... Um, was to give them a museum, so to speak. Okay, wait, I want to understand this. So like, right now, so let's say there's a contemporary artist working in Oslo or in Norway. Could they, when they like, you know, make a, a, an estate plan that basically says, I will donate all of my work to the city of Oslo now? Like, is that still a thing? No, okay. it isn't. Uh, no, but the, uh, it's, uh, it's a good question because we, we have examples of that in other cities in Norway where the artist, uh, still alive, uh, has donated uh, the art to the city with, um, with the idea that, uh, of course, the city will say yes. Um, and reluctantly the city say yes because the artist is pushing. Uh, and also getting some support from friends and and such but it is it's, it's not as it turned out to be some uh, well disastrous is maybe a, a too strong a word but it, it's not very successful because it turns out that the people that the artists and the municipalities they seem to be on different planets when it comes to funding and it it ends in tears so to speak because it's not sort of funded well enough. I don't mind an artist giving things to a city or municipality, but uh, on equal conditions in the sense that uh, when you 
accept a gift. Well, take care of it. And when you when you propose a gift, accept a no if there is a no. I know that. I mean, that's the thing. Is like municipalities. I mean, we even have it in the United States too, where you know artists will want to donate to a municipality, and it, it's it, to a certain extent, unless it's like agreed upon fully and 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 funded and 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 because i mean there's not just the storage and maintenance and upkeep and all this kind of stuff of this thing in perpetuity Mm. that they have to take into consideration but it's then the uh, like but oh we should also exhibit it and because we own it it should be shown to the public not just stored away i mean there's a lot that goes into that which i mean in many ways i wish we could as artists coordinate that more but it's not it's not very common so like to hear that like there's this rich history of artists donating their works to a municipality which like in america would never happen we're such a capitalistic society but i think it's really great because like to a certain extent it allows for like the knowledge for the artist to say my work, whether it's exhibited or not, at least will be maintained in perpetuity because the municipality is not going to go out of business. And I have uh, other examples as well from, from uh, artists that uh, passed away maybe 40, 50 years ago. Interesting artists, indeed. They have museums, but the, uh, the counties, they seem to be uh, neglecting them. So, I mean, there are, uh, there are pros and cons. But if you go back to the Vigland Museum, it's it's quite an interesting thing how it sort of came uh, to see the light of day. Vigland was... The agreement with the city of Oslo was that at one time... He, he, was, he was losing his studio uh, around sort of, let's say, 1920, just sort of 1920-ish, because they were building this new library at that time the Dijkman Library, which is now the old Dijkman Library because they have opened a new Dijkman Library. Of course. Uh, But anyway, they were uh, really sort of... Everything was demolished in that area, even the studio of Augusta Viglan. But at that time, he was in a very sort of important position and and people were actually writing in the newspapers that the city was slow. They had to take care of Augusta Viglan. You must, as an imperative, you must build him a new studio. Ah, the good old days when journalists actually <laughs> were on the side of artists <laughs> and supportive. Yeah, and, yes. Uh, and, uh, and of course, he the thing, he, he has put a very big impact, a footprint, so to speak, with which is now a museum, but also the Vigeland Park. But funnily enough, he was not that outgoing. He was not the one to approach the politicians or the decision makers. He, maybe he was shrewd in the sense that he he befriended people, and they would speak on his behalf. I will be honest, that is the most cunning way to mm. do it. Because, mm. like, I've talked with lots of people with, like, museum connections and stuff like this, and it's like, basically, going directly at the front door rarely works. Mm. However, going through the patrons, the supporters, the whatever, and then having them sort of, you know, fight on your behalf is exponentially more be- you know uh, successful mm. in outcomes generally than like knocking at the front door yeah now so he, he was uh, it's that's possibly one of the most fascinating things and he uh, I think he even wrote the the agreement as a, I mean the sketch on that 
uh, even though it, it was finalized with the uh, the politicians. But he says in that agreement, he says that uh, everything I own as of now and everything I have made and which is in my possession at the time of my death will uh, unconditionally be handed over to the city of Oslo. And in return, you will build me a studio, which will be a museum of my death, containing my art, but nothing my nothing but my art. <laughs> so th there were some conditions that may have uh, not been accepted today. <laughs> uh, but but then again, I, I must admit that we we, we are not that strict uh, these days. But wait, so the current wait is it the current location of the museum was his studio? It was his studio, yes. That is an amazing studio. It is indeed. But then again, we should bear in mind that uh, it was supposed to be a museum after his death. So it was a purpose built. Okay. So he, he didn't sort of run around and use, oh, today I will have this room. No, uh, now I'm... Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, <laughs> that is a decadent, like really, really, you know, privileged no, no, studio. Yeah, no, but it, it's... Uh, we, we could sort of play with that idea. But no, it was... Uh, he, he sort of kept himself to one or two rooms i mean uh, work work-wise but it was purpose-built with the intention of it being a museum after his death yes. and until that time he used some of it as yes. a studio and also uh, and uh, because the um, you know in the in the vigland park which is situated well or the museum is situated next to the vigland park uh he he, he spent his time sort of in in few rooms and um when he was starting to work in the studio, that was in 1923, uh, things were turning uh, the way, I mean, towards what was becoming the Vigland Park, as we know it. He had no idea, uh, no plans for that. Okay, boy, give us back a, a little bit of a, a geography, a mm. little bit. Uh, where is all the, you? So you've brought up the museum itself and the park. So where are they sort of within the Oslo um, geography? Well, if we are now in the center of Oslo. Uh, At the offices of Kunstcentrene i Norge, our partner in this podcast. Right. And a stone's throw from here, slightly west, we have the Royal Palace. And further west i'm sorry wait you think that's a stone's throw is that what's defined the, as a stone's throw i know what you're talking about yeah that you call you call that a stone's throw yes okay our stones are different go ahead <laughs> a pebble maybe or our throwing arm is different <laughs> go on not long <laughs> it's not a far no it's not a, it's a maybe five ten minute walk depending yeah. on your so, but for, for the west uh, we have the vigland park the frogner park and uh, and that contains uh 200 plus sculptures by Gustav Iglan. Wait, that, that's with the palace? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, further, further west. Okay, further west. That, that's a 20 minutes walk from okay. the palace, further west. And uh, on the outskirts of that park, I think it's about, how much is it? Can it be 30 acres? It can be. Yep. It's big. Okay, that is pretty big. Yep. So it, it, it's a uh, public park open to the public all year round, 24-7. And we do have people calling, asking, at what time is the close, uh, parking closing? I mean, but it happens in Europe. I mean, there are public parks that actually are closing at 
one specific time. Well, when you think it's a sculpture garden, a lot of those do close at night as well. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up with the Hirshhorn Museum, which has a sculpture garden, but it does close in the evenings. So, yeah. Yeah. In that park, we have uh, the monolith, which is fairly known. We have the fountain, and we have the bridge with the angry boy, uh, which is the sort of an icon uh, that Gustav Wigdan made. This park was conceived or built from early 1930s and finished in the late 40s, early 50s. It took some time. And it was not finished until Gustav Wigdan... I mean, he he died before he could see its conclusion. Anyway, back to the museum. That's the point. And uh, that's a starting point because... He, as he was working in the in his studio, uh, and he knew that he was going to work with the park, he decided to have the the plastered originals uh, in in the museum. So certain rooms were designated for the plastered originals for the fountain and the plastered originals for the monolith, and they were executed in bronze and granite, respectively. And there were other rooms that had... uh, They were planned for marble sculptures, but he didn't make too many of them. So, uh, over the years, uh, we have put some sort of uh, chronological presentation of his work. And we have three rooms, which is uh, spared, uh, in the sense that we use them for uh, changing exhibitions. Hmm. So, in that case, we are uh, opposing what he actually wrote in the agreement. I also noticed that, which I was unaware of, so he has a relationship with the Nobel Prize medal? Yes, he does. Because he, uh, and that is the, the, the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, uh, to so be specific, because yes. there are multiple ones. Yes. yes. Uh, so he, he was asked to, to design that. Yeah, so he, yes, so every, uh, every year, every 10th December, uh, when the Peace Prize is handed over to the the winner, uh, they receive a gold medal or gold-plated medal, uh, which has been designed by Gustav Wigdan. Okay, wait a second. The Nobel Peace Prize is gold-plated? That is horrible. It should be solid gold. Okay, maybe solid gold. May- don't quote me on this. It should be. Well, if it's not, it should be. Nobel Prize Committee, you yep. should do solid gold. That's ridiculous <laughs> that you would slate. Don't it. ruin my good relationship. To <laughs> no, but one thing, what, what I like, I mean, speaking of the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, as a director of the Vigla Museum, I receive an invitation to the ceremony in the city hall. Lovely. So, I, I know. Yeah. I, I just sit there for about two hours, but I, I very much enjoyed it. So every 10th December, I know what to do as long as I'm the director of the Vigla Museum. So he designed it originally, I saw in 1901, I believe. Mm. And so it's still the exact same design from then to today, still his design. Yes, so like, it is. I would say that's probably the thing he, he would be recognized the most for. But most people don't. I know. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but like, I'm yeah. doing a little research and I'm just like, oh, yeah, well, pff, I know. I mean, because I know what the Peace Prize looked like. I just was unaware that he had designed it. No, he's, uh, so he, he, was, he was quite lucky at, uh, <laughs> at some, some time. But then again, he was, um, I said maybe he was not that outgoing, but he, he certainly knew uh, who to uh, approach. Well, he knew Nobel. 
Uh, and he, he did have some important friends in, in, in Sweden, some uh, people with extreme wealth. Uh, and then they were supportive towards him. Uh, as uh, I mean, Ernst Thiel, a Swede, uh, possibly the richest man in Europe uh, at the uh, sort of early 1900s. He, he acquired works by Edvard Munch, Gustav Iglan, and a lot of Swedish artists. And he was sort of hanging around with, with the, uh, the Wallenbergs and the Bonniers, uh, sort of the really wealthy people. And they are still instrumental within the, the Swedish economy. Uh, so, so Ernst Thiel, he was very important to Gustav Wigland, yeah. Well, one of the things I always wonder about, like, the, okay, so you're a museum that exhibits sculptures primarily. I mean, I know there's, you know, photographs, sketches, other things that are probably involved in that as well. But beyond that, so you also then have a garden. What about the maintenance, the technical aspects of, like, upkeeping? Because, like, when you have things that are outdoors, have you have you ever had any problems with vandalism or damage through just environmental impacts, um, things like this? Yes, funny you should ask. Is it funny? <laughs> no, not really. No, but uh, let's hope it's not funny. No, no, it's not because it, but it's interesting. Uh, and speaking about the environmental thing, uh, not that much now, but back in the eighties. Acid rain. Yes, yeah. uh, that was uh, that made a serious impact on both the granite, the wrought iron, and the bronze. But for some strange reason, it has changed. So, so that's not uh, uh, we're not concerned that much uh, anymore. It's fun. I remember these conversations. I remember acid rain is going to yeah. destroy blah 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 blah. And then like over the years, I'm like we just don't talk about acid. What happened to acid rain? <laughs> I, I think we became more concerned. Uh, in the sense that we, uh, we I'm not saying that the air is cleaner, but we, I, I think uh, the industry became more concerned. We're less acidically polluting. <laughs> Maybe I think we have. Uh, I think we have taken some uh taking some action on, on that uh small steps maybe but i know from my conservators they they said that india it is huge problem not so much anymore it's good to know yeah it is it yeah. is but of course the vandalism it ha- happens occasionally and uh, not that much we can do about it, it we just have to uh, whenever there is some writing on on the sculptures we we we, we know how to to take it away is it just power washing or anything like basically yeah. you, you you use some uh, uh, other solutions as well and as long as it's a, it's a marker it's paint not that much of a problem it's just annoying yeah just as a, a horrible thing like nobody has tried to like chisel their name in or anything like that no uh no uh so uh don't do this at home good uh, don't do it ever <laughs> anywhere no but we the, the except angry in a tree or on a park bench like that's kind of cute and fun i'd have no problem with that but not no, a piece of no, sculpture but, no but the, the angry boy uh, as i said the sort of the, the icon uh, of the park uh on a good day i would say this is the the mona lisa of the park because it, this angry boy is the one thing that every one wants to see but that one for some strange reason is extremely popular and very popular among i would say burglars and in the sense that they have it has been uh sort of once and it disappeared totally and it was away for um, 
a number of days. Uh, and I think twice during my, uh, during my time as director, twice it has been attempted. So they are using a sort of... So that is vandalism. Oh, that's big, definitely big vandalism. Time. Yeah, yeah. It is. But wait, okay, wait. It was, um, it went missing mm, and then just sort of showed up again or police were involved? Oh, yes, absolutely, like, yeah. So I, I, I don't have the details about how it reappeared, uh, but they, they did find it. it not, uh, as, sort of not as complex as, as the scream. Uh, yeah, which was the, a, a great story. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So now we're not there, uh, but it, it, it did disappear, absolutely. So it's, but it has been strengthened. Uh, so it's, uh, we don't, there are uh, vandalism every now and then, but it, it's not that easy as it was. And then again, what can you possibly do with it other than? Well, I mean, the thing is, is because you have chosen, or I guess the municipality has chosen to allow it to be in a place that's open 24 hours a day, like it's kind of inevitable that something is going to be vandalized. I mean, the fact that it's the iconic piece, not great surprise, but something is going to be vandalized. I mean, God, you go into any park anywhere in the world, there's just some vandalism somewhere. I know, I know. So, but, but uh, knock on wood, we um, have been fairly lucky, uh, even though there has been vandalism, but few, few and far between, so to speak. Well, with the indoors though, so like, the, because you, I'm sure you have plaster molds and other kinds of things like that. What are some of the environmental things? Because like, I've been to many museums where they like will limit the amount of people in a room because the, simply the moisture coming out of their breath will potentially affect things. I've been into, you know, historical caves and stuff like this, same types of issues kind of things. So is there some sort of considerations that you all have to put into the amount of people? Like on a rainy day, you can allow less people in because they're also wet as well, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, it's uh, <laughs> we we don't have that high number of visitors, so it doesn't cause a problem. I, I make a large assumption. I assume everybody is well visited. <laughs> um, we are working on it, uh, but no, but that is actually a very good point. Uh, the museum, uh, well, as it was a museum, it's it was built a hundred years ago, so it's uh, it's not exactly up to date when it comes to. Uh, uh, internal the, the climate control mm. um, so we are very well aware of this relative humidity uh, indoors we are aware of the fact that when on a rainy day people appear that well umbrellas obviously raincoats please leave it off because uh, the plaster will be affected by that um, and I know we, we you can see uh, on some of the plaster originals uh, because they, uh, inside them, there are iron rods, you know, as a skeleton. And uh, they rust. They do, because uh, on some occasions Vigdan bought uh, uh, this, uh, these iron rods of well, slightly poor quality. Shocking. An artist using poor quality materials on the inside? I know, it's strange, but it's a fact. <laughs> Never heard of such a thing. <laughs> No, but it's the first time for everything, you know. No, but it's uh, so you can actually see spots uh, on this white uh, plaster that, so, and this is also interest, interesting in the sense that uh, th these materials they are alive, they react to each other, and they react to 
to the surroundings. Well, okay. So from a conservator or conservatory perspective on that, is that something that you would somehow try to mitigate and remove these sort of rusty marks? No, it's not that. um, They are maybe I should say birthmarks. So So it's it's not that, it's not that many and it's not that huge. So it's yet. Yet, uh, well, let me put it this way: no, not yet. But they they evolve in say in a tectonic way, so uh, we can we can live with it. Yeah, I mean, within your tenure, it probably will not become horrible. But I mean, for the future, I mean, it could you know fifty, sixty years from yeah. now, there, it could become quite prominent. Absolutely, but let's hope that uh, within that time, uh, the climate control in the museum would improve. We should hope that they would yeah. get updated climate control within that yes. time. Yes, agreed. Yes. But what, now, just to be clear, so like sort of funded kind of things like, so the, the building is owned by the, the municipality. So basically you're hoping that the municipality will find the funding to do that. Or I guess private partnership that could somehow support that as well. Is that something, sort of side note, like because you're run by the municipality, are you allowed to even have sort of sponsor partners, whatever kind of thing? Is that because some places that's inappropriate? I don't know here. No, we, uh, we are absolutely allowed to. If you, if you just look at the, the Munch Museum, they are doing it big time. Uh, they are. I mean, but, but then again, uh, I would say that Munch Museum is possibly uh, with a new building, with Munch as a worldwide name or brand even uh, they are much more attractive uh, they, they are and of course the Vigla Museum is a sculpture museum you don't sort of carry around sculptures that easily you just put it under your arm and it's granite sculptures they weigh about five tons oh yeah um, no but we are allowed to have uh, sort of uh, funds like that uh, sponsors but if we go back to the sort of the climate control internal so that would be the responsibility of the municipality the agency that would sort of own the building so uh, that would be uh, I, I, I said if <laughs> if we should get any funding uh, sponsors it would be to uh, for exhibitions to develop the museum the venue as a uh, a site for art, yeah, or, or presenting art, that is. Which is a perfect segue to the next question I had, which was, while the museum is a, or was founded on the nature of a, a single artist, there are, uh, I'm assuming, opportunities for contemporary sort of interpretations or expansions on the ideas of that artist or just random great contemporary art being exhibited. So what kind of sort of uh, programs do you have that sort of expand beyond the individual artist that it's based on? During my time, we have sort of have been concentrating on presenting uh, arts within the three-dimensional field sculpture, installation, video-based art to a certain extent. So we, as a sculpture museum, we have not been dealing with photography, uh, graphics or painting because there are other venues in Austin that can take care of that. I'm a photographer, by the way. Just yeah, so no offense. 
No, oh, okay. Well, you know, there are exceptions. So. No, 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 I sort of actually do painting three-dimensional work at this point, but still photography-based. I, I consider myself a photography-based artist, not a photographer. Yeah. No, but, uh, but then again, if you ask people, they would say, ah, oh, but they're not that strict. And we are not. But as a starting point, we will focus on the three-dimensional art. Uh, because there aren't... I mean, we don't have any other venues dealing with that. So I think we, we, we are... Uh, we're the only one in that sense and I think we're doing quite well and I should also say that we not necessarily uh, contemporary art we would very much like to present uh, at least contemporaries of Gustav Wiglund because the the challenge with a one-man museum and I say one man because there is usually a man heterosexual white man yes, yes to be clear yeah uh, but then again um, when you have a one-man museum you don't see how great or how interesting he was in his lifetime so because because Gustav Wiglund he, he was he was very much on vogue with what was going on in Europe well, it's not just that, like, these kinds of museums, it's not just about even, their, like, their relationship to their contemporaries, mm. but it's also, like, also, I find interesting to see how the impacts of their life and career then have now influenced newer generations. And so, like, that, that sort of lineage is also sort of a compelling way for me, anyways. Yeah. Now, well, I, I shouldn't say this, but I, I really have to, because if we say, if we compare Gustav Wiglund to Edvard Munch, and they were, they were contemporaries. And, and they w- Which, to be honest, it's sad that you have to continually do that because, because there is such a prominent museum which, with a huge public relations budget and so like everybody knows about them. And, of course, it's the Scream, which yeah. everybody yeah. knows about. Everybody had the poster in college in their dorm. But the, it, it's sort of sad that you have to do, continue to do that comparison instead of being able to just say, you know, Edward Munk was his thing and, and, and your, your artist was your thing. But because you're in uh, the same city, there seems to be like a continual comparison, basically, not just your museum, but like Monk versus everybody else. Well, yes, but, but then again, I, I, I use it, I think, uh, in a positive sense, because as I said, they were contemporaries, they were also acquaintances. Mm. Uh, and they, they didn't sort of compete not not that much so so uh i would say that they it's just that i i'm every now and then using it but i would maybe i should go back to what you uh originally asked about what we have and yes we do have uh artists of gustav Wiglund's own time because it is important to to show what gustav Wiglund was part of but when we do say contemporary uh artists i'm not asking he or she to do something in the vein of Gustav Wiglund. So, I mean, we... Select- Which would be pretty rare, quite yeah, but, honestly. But, 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 but uh, I know that... Do you want... I, mean, I don't want the Copies. artist... I, I don't want the artist to do something that is sort of going in a dialogue with Gustav Wiglund. Do what you are good at. And if there is some sort of a connection... Uh, appearing superb because what I think if you go in there and say now I shall 
sort of make myself equal to or whatever is like being provocative now i just want to be provocative and it you, you don't succeed <laughs> it, it falls flat to the ground basically or more often than not if you do something i mean pr- the provocative thing should be some sort of a surprise i think but the the thing is that one uh, one should bear in mind when i was going to talk about uh, Edvard munk was that he has a bigger impact on contemporary artists within the field of painting and he he was actually one of the few artists sort of coining uh, the uh, the term expressionism so there's no denying that gustav Vigeland was in a more classical vein and he was not in the forefront uh, rodin was there but believe you me gustav Vigeland was one of the best sculptors in europe at uh, at least say the from 1900 to, to 1915, definitely. I mean, he was a very sought-after artist among the curators of that time. He was invited to a number of exhibitions in, in Europe, even there was one time in, in Vienna, I believe it was in 1904. At that time, there were the, the leading artists of uh, Austria at that time, Gustav Klimt, just to mention one, and Rodin, they were there. And Gustav Wigland was the only Norwegian artist participating so we did have a position, uh, really. So it's it's not that, but I mean, working within a classical uh, field of sculpture, you're not that sort of, <laughs> it's a slow pace. So you have to bear that in mind. And, uh, you know, also, um, not too many Norwegian artists are working within the field of classical sculpture these days. So so that's, uh, so he, he doesn't put that much of an impact, but we have had, we have had exhibitions by contemporary artists dealing with uh, modernism and uh, and they they some of them do find Viglan interesting in uh, in different ways so they, 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 their way of looking at Viglan their way their approach to it they, that's how he can be some sort of uh, uh, an inspirational source but not as if you look at the sculpture as such well, like when I'm thinking about this, okay, so this is a sculpture place. So this is, th- these things are large, they are heavy, they are difficult. So I'm, I'm assuming that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there's sort of a, what I would call like a permanent exhibition that doesn't really change very often simply because of the, the logistics of doing that. And then there's these contemporary uh, exhibitions. How are they sort of curated? So like, do you all have curators on staff that do this? Do you get freelancers? And then sort of what's the the dialogue or even the conversations that go on behind the scenes of like how to curate an exhibition? Again, like, and I hate to say it, they keep bringing this up, but like in a museum that's sort of designed about one person. Mm. Well, we we have three rooms, basically. Uh, for changing exhibitions. Um, it's me and a colleague of mine, we are art historians, so we, together with a third uh, colleague, uh, art historian as well, but dealing mostly with uh, uh, education and uh, social media, but we discuss who would we like to work with, I mean artists alive. Basically, not necessarily Norwegians, but based in Norwegian. Uh, sorry, based in in Norway. So, so that's a criteria. Not necessarily, but it's uh, it, it's a matter of uh, sort of resources, financial resources. Sure, yeah. Practicality. You can't ship fr- stuff from Namibia. 
Now, in that case, we need funding. Yeah. <laughs> but, but now, so we don't, uh, it's not that, but, but also we have three exhibitions a year, so we have to be sort of selective. Uh, but we discuss, who do we find interesting? And sort of we, we end up with a list, we approach, and he or she says yes. And after that, it's basically up to the artist what to do. And we, we say, you can't do this and you can't do that. Uh, I mean, you, you can't, there's no, no nails in the wall, ceiling, floored. Right. So, oh, yeah, because you said it was a listed building. A, yes. Yeah. So, Look, so, for those who don't understand that, that's sort of a UK term, a, a historical yeah. building. So, so we, we can't make any changes. Uh, and, and the rooms are, I mean, what you see is what you get. And some artists find it annoying, irritating, but the, I would say, the best artists, the most interesting artists, they find it challenging in the most positive way. And basically, that's the artists we love to work with. Sure, limitations in, in force creativity. Yes, absolutely. And some of them will work uh, in a small scale, and some of them will think big, and and it shows <laughs> we have the, the two last the two last exhibitions they they were they went big and they were amazing absolutely and but uh, and there's one one of my first exhibitions that was back in 2006 so i i didn't plan that one but it's still possibly the best exhibition i have seen in that museum because it was it, in the, one of the rooms. Uh, it is uh, some 10 by 20 meters. So we are it's a pretty big room. 200 square meters, uh, floor to ceiling, nine meters. So it's- That's a really big room. Yes, it is. I'm assuming then probably some natural light as well. It's, it's, yeah. it's a skylight room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and she actually, she had made some Stoneworks uh, for Triennale in Yokohama, Japan, back in 2001. So this was five years later. Uh, they were black, polished. They were maybe three meters in the length, but only 10, 15 centimeters high. So they were lying on the floor like there were some sort of like oil. There they were, in that room. And in the next room, you could see the, the plaster, uh, the plaster original of the, of the fountain by Gustav Eglon. So you had the black, polished, um, horizontal thing in that room with a white vertical Gustav Eglon. So the horizontal female uh, made work with the horizontal white male work you do the math. Now, it, it, it was so, I mean, I know we were talking about the horizontal, the vertical, the female, the, the, the male. But it's iconic. I mean, it, the the, the yeah, thing is, I it's mean, an archetype. But still, her work was not made for this room. And it sort of, it all fell into place. Because, I mean, as an art historian, you you know sort of how to see, you have, well, your references and preferences. Uh, but so what I'm saying is not necessarily 
true. This is not a description of life as such, but this is a way of seeing. And I st as I said, it, it still is possibly the best exhibition. It's an example of what you can achieve um, uh, in that room. And I, I think that whenever an artist is asked to, uh, to exhibit and he or she, whatever they come up with, when they think less about Gustav Ignan, it will become better. When you bring that up, the thing that I wonder about, do you, do you commission works or do you choose existing works to, to put into this space? That could be sort of, it's a mix. So uh, I, there was one video artist I, I worked with uh, up in Tromsø uh, some 20 years ago. And I invited her to come back to when I was at the Gustav Wigland Museum. And of course she would she wanted to show new works so I, I just had one condition in the sense that do whatever you like but this work which was, was a, no point in naming it but that work I wanted I mean other than that do your thing so uh, I, I may be some sort of um, uh, I have some obsessions every now and then when it comes to artists, but but other than that, uh, I, I I have faith in the artists because I I have sort of followed them, I I know what they're capable of doing, and I trust them. We trust them, we do, and I think trust is an important word because the colleague of mine she was responsible for one of the the big things, <laughs> and she's much more uh, sort of hands-on than I am. Uh, <laughs> she is. But, but then again... It's a very uh, polite way of saying that. <laughs> no, but but, but uh, the artist that she was working with was... Uh, it was a dream team. Uh, she was so surprised because she didn't have to uh, send reminders to the artist. He was... I mean, before she had thought about it he was there <laughs> so I mean that was a match made in heaven because both of them were so dedicated to this and they were doing it on time and it was so sort of they were so specific about things it, it turned out perfectly well uh, but then again I, I think we just we, we received proposals and can it be done not too heavy, not too demanding. We don't have to sort of uh, remove doors and windows and stuff like that. So, uh, no, trust is an important word. Right. Okay, wait, but just to be clear, you do accept proposals. So it's not all sort of in-house curators from their own mind and their own relationships. They decide on what things. There are. There is the opportunity for artists to say, Oh my gosh, you know, I have a, this great work that has some relationship to the, either the space or, or the other works there and that stuff like this. And so they, there can be proposals. Submitted. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, great. Uh, uh, but then again, as, as I said, we have three exhibitions a year. So we don't um, let, try to be polite in the sense that we don't encourage artists to send proposals. But whenever, I mean, I am approached by artists and the artist says, I have a very good idea for you. So, I will lend them my ear. And it does happen. Absolutely. I will lend my ear and then politely say no. Well, it's like, um, yes, it's, 
<laughs> it's it well, but it's just true. I mean, our artists should understand. Don't do that. Like, I mean, it's just it's unprofessional. It's inappropriate for an artist to literally just walk up to a museum or a gallery director and be like, "Hi, here's my work." Like, totally unprofessional. Don't do it. If because it's gonna, you're not going to enjoy that experience generally most of the time. And nothing personal. I don't know any of your experiences, but it's not. It's just not going to go well. You know, send an email, say, hey, do you have a good time? Can we meet? You know, be professional about it. Don't just be like, hey, I have this great idea for your museum. Never going to work. Oh, in that case, I was uh, slightly, um, um, I mean, I was not precise. I'm, I'm not being sort of approached in, 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 the, in the lobby or uh, on the street. But I, uh, I do receive emails from artists every now and then. But, but then again, there may be artists I know. Uh, we know each other. I mean, and I was picturing you being stopped on the street. <laughs> Okay, it happens. Now, but but uh, the thing is, you should never say, sort of say no uh, because it, it may be a very good idea that I, but so every now and then things happens that I was not aware of, and that's a good thing. It's like you know sitting in a jury and you uh, receive applications, and all of a sudden there's one thing I I didn't see that come, and it's brilliant. Well, so, I mean. The, the arts world is one of those places like everybody's evolving, everybody's changing, everybody's growing, hopefully, mm, I should say, yeah. to be clear. <laughs> and so, so like, no is not always the best thing to be ever said, but it, it's more of a not now or not yet, because a lot of the creative processes and a lot of proposals are, they're, they're just not to the point to be ready for whatever purpose yet. So like the, the idea of not yet or not now, I feel like is a little bit better than no. I agree with you because I also think that on a more personal note, I am a sort of a slow learner, uh, developer. I, I, I need things to sort of grow on me. Uh, and when they do, it's good. And it's like, I very much like quoting, I think it was Ed Rocher that had a very precise description of the difference between bad art and good art. And uh, bad art was, wow, what? Good art is what? Wow. I like it. And I like Ed Roche. I love Ed Roche. <laughs> yeah, I went to San Francisco Art Institute, so like he, he he had a lot of influence in that region and stuff. Like I still to this day love his what seventy six gas stations. Like I mean, I to imagine you could have bought that on the street for a dollar mm. back when he originally created it, and now I mean it, now it's an iconic you know historic piece. Mm. It's like ugh. You know, I, but I'm a big fan of the sort of make something on the cheap and you know, the sort of a Warholian sort of like make a thousand things and sell it for a dollar, then mm. sell make things and sell one piece for a thousand dollars. Like I'm, I'm very much more of the egalitarian sort of, uh, you know, I want everybody to enjoy it versus just elite people. Mm. But that's my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. But I want to finish on something sort of uh, slightly fun because we talked a little bit about this before the, we started the recording. I love a gift shop. <laughs> so do you all have any sort of a museum store? We do. Uh, you would be surprised by the size. and the, uh, Surprised in a big way or a small way? In a small way. Okay. Uh, so this 
small shop will give you a big surprise. Uh, and we have a sort of limited selection of uh, souvenirs, but still, they are souvenirs. Now, with, then again, it's uh, um, it has something to do with the museum as such because we were built. The, the museum was built hundred years ago. Mm, they didn't plan for a museum shop. Strangely <laughs> enough, yes, I, that's so weird. They didn't know about gift shops a hundred years ago. No, can you imagine? <laughs> Well, now, no. I mean, it's the primary thing when you enter a museum these days, or when you exit, depending on yeah. the museum. But, but it's it's where they really make their money now. Oh yes, but I I, I do love a good museum shop, and um, basically, I uh, I would <laughs> I would buy postcards. But then again, uh, I have a stepdaughter, and every now and then we we travel abroad. And she's also very fond of the uh, shops, and she loves socks. So whenever uh, I I will have to buy some socks, and I do occasionally buy socks myself. So I would recommend uh, the Museo Reina Sofia in Madrid, <laughs> or the the, the National Museet uh, in Stockholm. But I mean, talking about Scandinavia, and this goes out to all you out there. Um, the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art north of Copenhagen. That is a gift shop. And sadly, I'm not going there. But not yet. <laughs> well, but I could order online, I would assume. But yeah. You can even buy bicycles there. What? Yes. I kid you not. I don't need a bicycle, but that's still an <laughs> But you can buy it. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's an interesting opportunity. All right. Any topics that you want to bring up or talk about that I haven't brought up? I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I th- very much enjoyed this conversation. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank so, you very much. Thank you. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We also would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, coworkers, and even studio mates anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core mission of this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Kush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.